My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joints. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And from my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word. And Father, we look to you that, Father, you may speak to us through your word that you may teach us, that you may meet each of us where we are. Father, you may not only give us understanding of your word, but that we would hear your lovely voice. And that, Father, you would apply this word to our hearts in such a way that it changes us. That as we leave here this morning, we will be more like Christ Jesus than when we arrived. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen and amen. Our psalm begins with terrifying words, doesn't it? Have you ever thought of these words as terrifying words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word forsaken should get our attention because that's a strong word, isn't it? It means abandonment. And the scriptures teach that uh, God will never forsake his people. Uh, we, we have that explicitly said in many texts. And we have it said in so many other words and many other texts that uh, God would never forsake his people. So um, we can find ourselves a bit confused by verse 1. Notice that the psalmist says, my God, my God. That is a profession of faith, isn't it? The psalmist, as we're going to see as we go through the psalm, is a man of faith. And we might ask ourselves the question right at the forefront, how is it that a man of faith could find himself forsaken of God? When all of these scripture passages teach over and over again, that God would never forsake his children. I want to kind of hold on to that thought for a moment. And let me tease a few things out of that thought before we move on. There are many people in our culture today that believe that God would not forsake anyone. And, um, of course, the scriptures teach otherwise. We might think of the prophet Azariah, who comes to King Asa. And he tells King Asa, he says, listen, King Asa, if you will seek the Lord, you'll be found by him. But if you forsake the Lord, guess what he says? If you forsake the Lord, you will be forsaken by the Lord. That's not a popular message in our day. And I think there's good reason for that. It's kind of like the... the the message of eternal punishment, that's a hard one, isn't it? The fact that a soul could slip into eternity, the person could slip into eternity and be lost with no hope of recovery, with no hope of restoration, with no hope whatsoever. I think that that doctrine is so painful for us that even though in one sense we might believe that doctrine, we might hold on to that doctrine, we might say, I affirm that, that's what the Bible teaches, but practically speaking, it's such a painful doctrine that we just bury that in the back of our heads somewhere, don't we? Because quite frankly, you're probably like me. I find myself really uh, talking sometimes like I don't believe that doctrine. But I do believe that doctrine. It's a painful doctrine. The doctrine of being forsaken is a related doctrine. Here we have the psalmist saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He goes on, he says, why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, look at verse 2 with me. He says, my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. By night, but I find no rest. Here we learn that whatever is going on 
And we're going to learn a lot about what's going on as we go through this psalm. We learn that this has been persisting for quite some time. This is just not a weak moment on a, on a Monday afternoon at the workplace somewhere. This has been going on for quite some time. He's crying out by day. He's crying out by night. He's crying out by day. He's crying out by night. And so far, there's nothing but silence. That's why I say this is terrifying. It's terrifying. The psalmist is at a place where he needs the presence of God the very most. And he's calling on God and he, to, his, to his senses, to uh, his perception of faith, God is not there. And he's asking the question, why? Notice in verse 3, and verse 3 is going to open up a pattern here. This is a, a longer psalm than we've been looking at over the last few weeks. And in longer psalms, sometimes it's easy to get lost in them. You find yourself maybe getting lost in You'll read the psalm, you say, okay, what was all that about? Well, sometimes there are patterns in the psalms that help us actually uh, break them down. They, in a sense, get a little smaller for us. And I'm going to show you a pattern here. Verses 1 to 2, the psalmist is crying out. And then in verse 3, look what he says. He says, yet you are holy. Yet you are holy. If there's a word that's misunderstood in the Bible, it's the word holy. It's hard for us to get our minds around what that means. Here the psalmist on one hand, he is saying to God, I'm crying out to you. I'm in dire straits here. I need you. I cry by day. I cry by night. And where are you, Lord? But he is not finding fault with God. In verse 3, he professes outstanding faith. He says, yet you are holy. In other words, you're not dealing with me in, in unkindness in any shape, way, or form. To be holy is more than simply being set apart. To be holy is to be found without imperfections, to be found holy and pure, to be found without corruption, to be found without injustice, to be found always right all the time. God couldn't be perfectly loving unless he was perfectly holy. So his holiness is greatly invested in his lovingness. And though the psalmist is going through arguably probably the worst time of his life, and in fact, as we continue to study the psalm, we're going to see that it describes the absolute worst time of the life. And God is silent. He ascribes no wrongdoing. In verse 3, he says, yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. Verse 4, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. What's the psalmist doing? The psalmist is doing what the psalms often do. In a moment, a, a weak moment, in a, in a moment of dire straits, in a moment of distress, in a moment of trouble, or even in a season of trouble, they look back to the faith of their fathers. There's an old hymn that we used to sing called Faith of Our Fathers. Some of you will remember that hymn. Faith of Our Fathers. That is a biblical practice. 
And it involves looking back at how God has dealt with the faithful in the past and understanding that God doesn't change. How he dealt with the faithful in the past is how he will deal with the faithful in the present and how he will deal with the faithful in the future. The psalmist is looking back to the past. He's looking back to God's record, which is perfect. He's looking at the record of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And he's saying, my daddy cried out to you. In his hour of need. And you rescued him. You delivered him. My parents trusted you. And you came through for them. Then when we get to verse 6, this pattern continues. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Now he's beginning to describe some of the things that are happening to him. Scorn is a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing. Verse 7, all see me, mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. We all have a desire to want to be liked, do we not? Um, if, when you have to spend time with people that you know don't like you, that's not a real comfortable thing, is it? It's actually quite difficult to be around people that don't like you. We were created to be relational. We all need relationships. To be around people that you, 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 you think despise you is an awful thing. And to be around people who would scorn you, people who would ridicule you, people who, who would detest you verbally and publicly is an awful, awful experience, isn't it? And as I say these things, I have no doubt that some of you have had experiences in the past where that has happened to you. And once in a while when I'm talking with folks and... Uh, it, it comes out, you know, you know, such and such, you know, said some things to me and a long time ago. And I, it's just bothered me ever since. Oh, it's bothered you ever since. My goodness, it's in some cases has left us with complexes. That old adage that sticks and stones break my bones, but names will never hurt me is a foolish adage, isn't it? Words won't hurt. Words really hurt. If they're the right words at the right time, they can bring tears to your eyes. They can make you not want to leave the house. They can drive you to complete seclusion. I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. Lord, where are you? You see what's going on here? Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Here we see the psalmist is being persecuted for his faith. You see, that's why I'm saying the psalmist is a man of faith. He is such a man of faith that even his enemies are taunting him. They come to him and say, oh, you trust in the Lord. Huh? Let the Lord deliver you. And the, the, the very cruel thing about this is notice the word Lord in verse 8. What do you notice about that word? It's all capital letters, isn't it? And you've heard me say many times, what does that mean? That means the covenantal name of God is being used there. The translators are, are, are using uh, the name Yahweh. They're translating the name Yahweh. 
the personal name of God. These people are using the personal covenant name of God. That gives us every reason to believe that these are fellow Israelites. Fellow Israelites are using this. His own countrymen are taunting him in this way. His own countrymen are persecuting him. Now notice the pattern again. Verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. What's the psalmist saying there? He's saying you're the very physician that delivered me from my mother's womb. You were the very arms that took my naked body and held my body. And you were the one that gave me faith from the get-go. You see, he's a man of faith. You see that? It is you who made me trust you at my mother's breast. This morning, a young fellow asked me where faith comes from. I told him it's a gift. Faith is a gift. That's the testimony of the word of God. Where do we get that gift? Faith comes from hearing. It comes from studying. It comes from reading the Bible. It comes from gathering together like this. Our faith is strengthened as we gather together like this. Quit gathering like this and your faith will weaken. I can promise you that. Come together uh, on the Lord's day. Come together as you have opportunities and your faith will strengthen. Faith comes from hearing. It's a gift from God. Here the psalmist is confessing this. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near and there is none to help. And here we see the pattern again. Look at verse 12. He's describing his, his distress again. You see it's going from, the pattern is going from distress to uh, memories uh, of hope. In other words, it's going from distress to faith, from distress to faith. We see this pattern repeating itself. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. When I was a kid, I remember uh, being taken by an uncle to wheeling to a rodeo. And at that rodeo, it, it, was, it was really something to watch these guys get on these big bulls, you know. You know, on TV, it looks, uh, you know, it looks different when you're there in person and you see the size of these animals and uh, there they are you know they're all taunted and ready to go and these guys get in the stable and they get a hold of them as best they can and they pop open the door and out they go Uh, oh my goodness these guys are crazy Um, they're looking for back problems I mean I don't know why anyone would want to do that but away they go and up they go and around they go and then eventually they almost always get pitched off the back of this of this animal. Now, you ever notice what they do once they're pitched off? They hightail it out of there, don't they? Why? These are powerful animals, and they're probably just a little bit perturbed about the event that just took place. And in some cases, they've got these horns. We're going to see that in a few minutes, these large horns. And there's usually guys, funny-dressed guys, you know, that come out of barrels or around the barrels, and they try to distract the animal from attacking the one who's been upon them. It is really something to watch. Many bulls encompass, encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Here we see his distress is taking on beastly uh, uh, categories, if you will. 
uh, beastly categories. Here, I, I think the idea, Alec Montier, an Old Testament scholar, an incredible Old Testament scholar, uh, comments on these passages that, that the human restraints, the normal human restraints are gone. Uh, it's now becoming absolute savagery here. Uh, it's taking on beastly proportions. He begins to describe himself physically in verse 14. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Has anybody ever been thirsty for a long period of time? For an extended period of time, have you ever experienced that? If you have, you know what I'm talking about. It's one of the, it's one of the most awful experiences you can have to be thirsty, to be without water, to not be able to get a drink. Strength is dried up. Verse 16, he says, Dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. You'll notice there's a footnote if you're looking at the ESV Bible. There's a footnote there. And if you look at the bottom, um, you see where it says some Hebrew manuscripts, Septuagint, Vulgate, Syriac, most Hebrew manuscripts. There's an alternative translation here that says, Like a lion, they are at my hands and feet. Do you see that? That's the translator's way of saying, listen, some manuscripts read a little differently on this point. In fact, many of the medieval manuscripts of the Old Testament read like the footnote, like the margin notes. And we, would add, we might ask, okay, why, why isn't the margin note up in the text? Why have the, why have the ESV translators elected to use, they have pierced my hands and feet instead of like a lion there at my hands and feet? Why have they elected to do that? Because we have a lot of older manuscripts than the medieval manuscripts that read this way. And that funny word Septuagint, that might be new to some of you. The Septuagint is simply the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And we have uh, uh, copies of that go all the way back to about 200 B.C. And they read, uh, they have um, pierced my hands and feet. We've got really good reason to believe that is the original but the um, translators don't hide these things if anyone ever comes to you and says the Bible's full of lies they're full of lies if anyone comes to you and says listen there's all kinds of like crazy things in the Bible if you've got a if you've got a Bible that has these margin notes listen the translators are always alerting you to these kinds of things you see what I just pointed out to you when there are discrepancies if, if, there, if there are major discrepancies, there's a footnote, there's a margin note. Uh, we don't need to be afraid of that. Uh, we've got the margin notes. We don't need to be afraid of those voices that would say things like that to us. We've got very good reason to believe they have pierced my hands and, my hands and feet. Verse 17, I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. That's an awful experience. Um, I remember... Um, hearing the testimony of a man who had been homeless for quite some time. This was when we were ministering in Pittsburgh. And uh, he had lived out of dumpsters for a number of years. And he said, um, listen, the worst part of finding food in a dumpster is not getting sick, not getting food poisoning. That's not the worst part. The worst part of getting, making your living from a dumpster 
is the people that gloat over you while you do it. It's an awful experience, isn't it? Um, especially today in our culture. I mean, we, so, we, are, we are so concerned of what people think of us, aren't we? That it's, it's, it's really at an unhealthy level. We worry about that too much. Uh, there was a conference, a biblical counseling conference that was done recently, and that was one of the major topics that was at that uh, counseling conference was, you know, basically they had some fancy words for it, but basically, you know, worrying too much what other people think of you, you know. Uh, we worry about what other people think of us, but what does God think of us? Uh, sometimes we don't think about that as much, do we? But at any rate, verse, verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And then we see the pattern again, verse 19, but you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Now, again, we're seeing those the beastly categories there, from the mouth of the lion. Tammy and I were watching a movie here recently, and there was a scene. I think it was uh, it was Meryl Streep, and it was uh, um, it was um, um, help me uh, Robert Redford. It was a movie from the '90s. They were in Africa, and uh, there was a, there was one scene where they were being charged by these lions. Oh my goodness, it was at a very scary sight. I don't know how they pulled it off, but they had the lion actually charging them. Um, a very frightening scene. I. I I can't help but to think of that scene when I read these words, having seen that um, uh, verse um, uh, 21 there, save me from the mouth of the lion. And then if you look at the, uh, verse 21, the very end, uh, from the horns of the wild oxen. If we think of the bull riders again, you know, especially those that are riding those, those steers with those horns. Um, Literally, what's going on in verse 21 is the psalmist is actually, and I don't mean to be gross here or exceptionally graphic, but what is going on here is the oxen is actually tossing his body by way of the horns. Um, it's not something that a person could survive, especially maybe today, uh, if you've got um, great nurses around and you've got life flight helicopters and you've got trauma centers, you know, that are nearby. Maybe someone could survive that. But in ancient Israel, really, I hardly think that that could be survived. What we have going on here is an execution. An execution is taking place. And if you look in verse 21, it says, you have rescued. You have rescued. There's a footnote there. If you look down in the margin, it says the Hebrew answered. This, tr this could be translated, you have answered me too. And I think really the margin note's a better way to go. You have answered me. Because it plays on verse 2. If you look back to verse 2. Uh, my God, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not what? It, you do not answer. Yana is the verb. It's the same verb that's being used in verse 21. It, it means rescued is a... Is the, that's a valid translation, but I think uh, you have answered me, I think, uh, would, would be my preference of a, of a translation of looking at the margin note. But either way, whether we use rescued or answered, we're not wrong. But I want to point out to your attention that help does come. But strangely enough, it doesn't come 
until the psalmist is being tossed on the horns of the oxen. And we might ask, why? Now, as we read through these things, those of you who are familiar with the New Testament are recognizing all kinds of stuff, aren't you? And you're saying, hey, this applies to, this applies to, is he going to say anything about, like, Jesus and his crucifixion and his passion? Are you going to mention that? Oh, I've been saving that. Because before we get to that, I want us to understand what this psalm meant to its original readers. And there's an application here to the original audience. And there's an application to us. What's being described here is what I'll, I'll say the innocent sufferer. Now, when I say innocent, uh, please let me, let me qualify that. There's no one who is innocent save Jesus. He's the only one who is innocent. There's no one who does good. All have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are innocent. We've all rebelled against God. Our sin proves it every time we do it. We need a savior. So when I say innocent sufferer, I say there's no reason given in the psalm where this man should be suffering this way. There's no particular, he can't think of a reason why he should be suffering this way. Lord, come to help me. What's going on here? Why is this happening? And there's a powerful message here for, for us. If you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, perhaps you've gone through a season where you found yourself in some level of distress and you've called on the Lord and he just doesn't seem to be around. I hope you've never had that experience. Not everyone will have that experience, but some of us will have that experience. And when you have that experience, don't think something strange is happening to you. As one physician has said, and I shared this Wednesday night at our Bible study, there are some diseases that aren't common, but they're not unusual it kind of sounds like, what? Well, it's not uncommon, but it's not unusual. You know, it's not common. In other words, lots of people get through life without this happening to them. But listen, we've seen it many times before. Many a believer will get through life without experiencing something like this. But listen, if you don't, this is not uncommon. We've seen it before. In a group this size, some of us are going to go through this. And when we do, Psalm 22 is our psalm. You see, I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to treat this just merely as a prophecy of Christ's passion. I want to deal with the psalm the way we should deal with the psalm and then show its ultimate fulfillment. Now, can we get to the ultimate fulfillment of it? What is the ultimate fulfillment of it? These words in verse 1 are famous words, aren't they? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who said those words in the New Testament? Jesus says those words in the New Testament. And we're trying to answer the question, how is it that a man of faith could be forsaken by God? How is it that a man of faith could be forsaken by God when the scriptures clearly say, when God promises, I will not forsake you? There's only one answer to that question. When Christ Jesus was hanging on that cross, he was assuming the sin debt of us all. His record is the way I used to, when I was doing ministry at Columbiana County Jail, is the way I used to describe Say, listen, we all have a record. Each one of us has a record. Whether you're wearing orange or you're not wearing orange, we have a record. When Jesus went to the cross, our record was applied to him. 
And when all of that sin got applied to Jesus, the father had to look the other way. And that was the worst part of Christ's agony for the first time. My God, my God, why? It's not that he didn't know the answer. He knew the answer. And we can apply all these things, can't we? I mean, look at all of these, look at all these prophecies. I mean, it's an amazing, scorned by mankind, verse 6, all who seek me, all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me. These are the things that were said by the passerby as Jesus was hanging on the cross. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Out of the mouths of the chief priests, the scribes and the Pharisees are saying these things. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. We recognize these verses, don't we? If you're a reader of the, of the New Testament, they, I can count all my bones. They have pierced my hands and feet. Crucifixion is being described a thousand years before Jesus has been, is being crucified. Crucifixion wasn't really practiced at this day. I'm not sure. I don't think David would have known what crucifixion even was. I can't say for sure that, but I don't think he would have known what crucifixion was. Some will say it hadn't been invented yet. I don't know if that's true or if that isn't true. They divide my garments among them, verse 18, for my clothing. They cast lots. This was the work of the soldiers, wasn't it, around uh, Jesus. Then we get to verse 21. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Remember that imagery of the, the psalmist's body being tossed on the horns? He doesn't receive his answer until he's being tossed on the horns. What's the last thing that Jesus says on the cross? He says it is finished. And with that, we understand that Jesus realized before he gave up his spirit that the Father heard him and received him. And then he gave up his spirit. And then the psalm takes on a whole different dimension in verse 22. I will tell of your name to who? My brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. If you'd slip your bulletin in Psalm 22 and go back to that passage we read at the beginning of our, of our uh, service, back to Hebrews chapter 2. If we go to Hebrews uh, 2 and verse 11. Page 1002. Tammy, do you have any Kleenexes in there? I used to have a box of Kleenexes up here. There's something in this room that drives me. Oh, thank you. We got one. There's something in here that makes my hours go. Have you all found a place in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11? You see where it says, For he who sanctifies? And those who are sanctified all have one origin. What in the world does that mean? 
And that is why he's not ashamed to what? To call them what? Brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I'll sing your praise. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The author to the letter of Hebrews is citing our text from Psalm 22. Huh. Okay. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. Who is he who sanctifies? The greater context is Christ Jesus is who sanctifies. He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified all have one origin. What is that origin? We think of our scripture memory verse. Jesus you know, talks about I am the resurrection and the what? The life. Where does his life come from? His life comes from God, doesn't it? Jesus is in union with God, isn't he? He is the Son of God. He is in union. There's solidarity between Christ Jesus and God, isn't there? A, uh, I had a conversation today with a young man that really, I think, for the first time, it really had hit him that, okay, Easter is about uh, Jesus coming out of the grave. I mean, he was really serious. He had never put that together. That, and he was really having a lot of trouble with that. He's like, people don't, people don't come out of the grave. And he asked me, how is it? I mean, how can, how can a human being come out of a grave? I said, well, humanly, it's impossible. He said, well, but Jesus was human, right? I said, human and, and divine. He's got two natures. How's that possible? I know it's, it's difficult to believe, isn't it? Humanly impossible to believe. But to the one who's been given faith... Uh, it's, it's, it's the gospel truth. It's the gospel truth whether you have faith or you don't have faith. And I said to him, I said, well, um, how, does th- how do things work? I mean, do lights come on without being plugged into the wall? He's like, no. You know, do cars work without having gas in them? No. Well, how is your body functioning? What's keeping your body working? I don't know. I said, what keeps the sun working? The universe. Okay, well, what keeps the universe working? It's God. It's God. It's the source of life. Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. Christ is in union with God. And by virtue of that union, Christ is alive, living and breathing. And by union of faith, as the Holy Spirit works faith in the hearts of of you and I, guess what happens? You are brought into union with Christ. And as you are brought into union with Christ, you're one. And that's why he's not ashamed to call you one. It's not a shame to call you brothers, anthropoi. Brothers, it can be translated sisters too, by the way. I love telling the ladies that. In fact, the title of this message is, He Calls Me Brother, He Calls Me Sister. Do you realize that? He calls me brother. He calls me sister. That's enough for one day, isn't it? We give him lots of reasons to be ashamed of us, don't we? He will not be ashamed. Why? Because he took it away. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you have been washed 
And when God looks at you, he sees you as holy. He's not ashamed to call you brother. He's not ashamed to call you sister. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you. For these truths are so magnificent, it's difficult to keep the tears from flowing from our eyes. Oh, Father, that you, sovereign creator of the universe, would refer to us as brothers and sisters. That the sovereign creator of the universe would hang on a cross naked and give up his life to save the likes of us. Oh, the news that you're alive, oh, Father, the news that you're reigning at the, at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, is the best of news that we could ever ask for. And we celebrate that this day, that Jesus is alive. Oh, Father, we thank you for our Lord and Savior. We thank you for making yourself known by virtue of his work. And we thank you, oh, Father, that he calls us brothers and he calls us sisters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.